How the Atonement Substitutes Punishment. That's what we're going to be talking about in today's video, so stay tuned. Hey there, my name's Hal. Thanks so much for taking the time to tune into my channel today. If you like what you see in here, make sure you hit the subscribe button below. Also, if you have any questions or comments, leave it in the comment section below. So we've been talking about the atonement, and if you watched my past two videos, you'll uh, remember that my views on the atonement have recently changed. I used to subscribe to the, the um, predominant theory of the atonement called penal substitution, but I explained in my first video how I think there are problems with penal substitution. And after some further study, I came to the conclusion that there are better theories, namely one better theory, on the atonement, and that is the governmental theory of the atonement. I believe this theory uh, best represents what the Bible teaches, um, and it also makes the most logical sense when you think about uh, the atonement. So I believe it fits really well with what the Bible says. I would encourage you to go back to my second video where I talk about the governmental theory of the atonement, and I give a you know brief overview of what it is. In this video, I'm going to get a little more uh, deep into what the governmental theory of the atonement is, and I'm talking more specifically about how the atonement substitutes pun uh, punishment. You remember in my last video that I had my uh, little block diagram here, and I talked about how the, that law, God is a God of law. You know, we're not, not necessarily talking about the law of Moses, but God's always been a God of law, even from the, the Garden of Eden when he made his, his first law, and now to uh, the, the law of Christ, which is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the thing about law that we mentioned is that every law is established upon two pillars, a pillars of rewards and punishment. And law is not law. It doesn't. It, it, the definition of law doesn't is that it has uh, sanctions that come with it. And if you take away the sanctions, if you take away the, the penalty of the law, all of a sudden the law falls apart. You don't have law anymore. You just have suggestion or good advice. And the what I talked about in my previous video is that God is not willing to dispose of His law because it's too important to Him. It's too important to His kingdom. It's too important to the well-being of all uh, creation that his law is upheld. And so I talked about the, the genius of the cross, that God provided a way that he could forgive sinners because um, if he forgave sinners without any kind of replacement, the law would fall apart. But God provided himself a way to um, uphold the law and forgive sinners at the same time, and this he accomplished through the cross of Christ. And this is the purpose of the atonement. Christ's suffering and death was not our punishment upon him, but it was a sacrifice designed to accomplish the same purpose or the same ends that the penalty of the law would normally accomplish. So the penalty of the law, God's punishment for breaking the law, there's certain reasons that it happened, it's, and it's not just because God's angry or because God's holy. No, God has certain reasons why he punishes people. Um, that's what we're going to talk about in, in this video. The atonement also answers those same ends and uh, upholds the law and enables God to forgive us at the same time. That's what the atonement is. So in this video, I'm going to be talking about three ways that punishment upholds the law and how the atonement is a substitute for that punishment serving the same purpose to uphold the law. So number one, the penalty of the law slash the atonement serves to impress the evil of sin upon the minds of the people. You know, one of the things that's very important for a ruler to do, it's very important for God to do, 
is to send a clear message of how he is holy and how he hates sin. And he does this through the penalty of the law, and he also does this through the atonement. First, let's talk about the penalty of the law. If you look throughout the Bible, you'll see that God often executes the penalty of his law in such a way to send a clear message to the whole community about how evil sin is. If the atonement is going to answer the same ends, if it's going to serve the same governmental purpose that the punishment or the penalty of the law is going to serve, it also has to demonstrate the evil of sin. And the atonement does that very well. The atonement demonstrates the evil of sin by the suffering the sufferings of Christ upon the cross. Now I want you to think about the sufferings of Christ. The Bible clearly says uh, that Jesus suffered for sin. The reason he had to suffer was for sin. If that's the case, it follows that if the perfect Son of God had to suffer for sin, then sin must be extremely evil. When we look upon the cross, when we look upon the fact that Jesus was a perfect, spotless, divine Son of God, when we hear from Revelation that Jesus had to suffer in such a way for us to receive forgiveness, we can make the logical deduction that sin is truly evil in the eyes of God. He's not letting sin be um, uh, brushed under the rug. Uh, he's sending a message to the world that sin is evil. It's a terrible, destructive thing. And if Jesus had to suffer so much for sin, it must be that sin is extremely evil in the eyes of God. And the cross of Christ leaves us no doubt that evil, sin is evil in the eyes of God. By way of example to kind of help us to understand this, um, I want to give a, an example from the Old Testament um, of atonement. And this is a passage that's a difficult passage, but I believe it very clearly helps to demonstrate what the atonement is for. Uh, if you look in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 14, uh, you'll read the story about David when David was pointed out by Nathan for his sin of uh, uh, committing murder and also committing adultery. And if you look at that passage and you read over that passage, you'll see that there's kind of a progression of things that Nathan declares against David. First of all, Nathan points out David's sin, and after he point, when, and when he points out David's sin, he lists a list of consequences uh, that's going to come upon David. And David's response was a response of true humility, uh, true um, hatred for what he had done, and true repentance, and he uh, repented before the Lord and before Nathan. And it's real interesting what Nathan said next, because he said, um, "The Lord has put the Lord has also put away your sin; you shall not die." Now, this is a, a very interesting passage, a very interesting passage, and it's very telling of the way God works, and it also helps us understand the atonement. Because if you understand Old Testament, um, the, the the Old Covenant you'll know that the uh, sin of murder and the sin of adultery both require the death penalty. And so David committed sin under the old covenant that was worthy of death. And also, regarding the sin of murder, and I'm not sure, I'm not 100% sure on adultery, but I think it's the same thing. Regarding those sins, there was no atonement for those sins. You couldn't bring a, a lamb or a calf or, or whatever under the old covenant uh, and uh, give a sacrifice and receive forgiveness for murder. It, you couldn't do that. The Bible specifically says in the Old Testament that a murderer shall be put to death. And so here you have David, uh, the a man that had once walked with God and who would walk with God again in the future, who had committed the worst of crimes, broken two of the Ten Commandments, and God forgiving him for doing so. 
And so, you know, just imagine, I want you to think about this situation. Just imagine that you start hearing about this situation. You may live in Israel, you may live outside of Israel, but you're familiar with Israel's law. You're familiar with the fact that David broke two of the Ten Commandments. You're familiar with the fact that um, uh, these commandments um, were not forgivable under the Old Testament, that the, the penalty for these commandments was death. And then you hear that God forgives him and lets him off the hook. You know, he has, he has some consequences, some things that happen to him, but he's not suffering the penalty of the law. God, and the Bible says that God put away his sin. God forgave his sin. And so what, what would you begin to think as a people? What would you be able to think, especially if you were an enemy of the Lord? You know, what would you say? Well, you'd say, look, you know, the Lord, you know, if, if you're the king, then you can get away with what you want. Um, if you're, you know, if you're in power, then you don't suffer the consequences of sin. Uh, and so you can see that because of this deed that David did, that all the enemies of the Lord would have uh, reason to blaspheme because of what he did. And then if you look in the very next verse, and I want to grab this in my Bible, God understood this, and so God said something about this. This is 2 Samuel um, chapter 12. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. All right, now this is a passage that... Um, a lot of us have wrestled with, but I'm going to put aside um, some of the, the, those things right now. I don't want to talk about the who's, what's, and why's behind this passage, but I want to talk about how this is a picture of the atonement. Because here it is, David was an, Nathan announced to David the consequences of sin. David announced that God put away his sin or forgave him his sin. And then, da and then Nathan announced, hey, listen, because you have done this deed, you have given great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. Therefore, the child that is born to you shall surely die. Now, I do want to put, like in parentheses right here, I understand that some modern translations translate this verse differently. Uh, but, you know, it, it makes, to me, it makes a whole lot more sense in the, in the, the way that it's written as, as in the, uh, the uh, text in the New King James also, the Septuagint is written the same as the New King James and the King James Version. So it seems to me that this is the correct translation. But anyway, we see here that David's son, God chose to take David's son. Why? Because he had given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. In other words, what is God doing here? Why does God do this? What is God trying to say here by doing this? He wants everyone who looks at this situation to see and know that he hates sin and that sin is a very evil thing. And by doing this, by taking this son, he sends a clear message to the, all the community, all the, the enemies of the Lord, that the Lord is not um, soft concerning sin, that sin is an evil thing. And by taking the life of this young boy, he's demonstrating that to the entire community. He's demonstrating the evil of sin by taking this boy's life. And this is actually a picture of the atonement. It's actually a really good picture of the atonement because here we have an innocent person dying because of David's sin. Um, and then what's really interesting too, and this is just a side note, is that David's second son, born to Bathsheba, was Solomon. And the Bible says Solomon is raised up to be the king of Israel. And this is a picture of Jesus Christ, his first and second coming. First coming to suffer for sins, second coming as um, Lord and king of all the world. Pretty cool. Number two, the penalty of the law slash the atonement 
demonstrates the value that God places upon his law. Now, this is very important. Like we said, God is a God of law, and he desires to have everyone understand that he cares deeply about his law, and he's not willing to dispose of his law. A good example of this would be the Medo-Persian Empire in Daniel chapter 6. In Daniel chapter 6, we see the story of Daniel in the lion's den. And in this story, we see Daniel um, is, uh, is conspired against by some of the people in the kingdom that do not like him. And what happens is these um, officials introduce a law to the king, to King Darius, uh, saying that no one shall pray to anyone but him for 30 days. Now, the king eventually finds out that this law is um, only against Daniel, and that's the reason that it was uh, instituted. But even though it was instituted against Daniel, and even though the king found out that this was just a big trick, um, the officials come to the king and says, listen, you have to execute the penalty of the law because the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be broken. Or a better way to say it is the law of the Medes and the Persians cannot be altered. It cannot be altered. And so uh, this is a very interesting thing that the Bible says about the laws of the Medes and Persians. So why is it that the Medes and the Persians, the Medo-Persian Empire, uh, had laws that could not be altered? You know, why is that? Why couldn't the king, who's the king, he had absolute power, he could do whatever he wanted. Why couldn't he just forgive Daniel, if he will? Why couldn't he just say, hey, you guys tricked me. You guys are going in the lion's den. You know, this is crazy. Why couldn't he just do that? Why, why did he have to send Daniel to the lion's den? Well... What happened was, what presumably happened, was the, uh, at some point in their history, the Medo-Persian Empire sat down as a council or an earlier king made a, a declaration and said, listen, our laws can't be altered. We, we're not going to change our laws. When our laws go into effect, um, they're not going to be changed. And we're, we want everyone to know that the laws of the Medes and the Persians are very important to us. And they're so important to us that once they go into effect, they cannot change. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. Think about you under uh, Medo, the Medo-Persian Empire, and you understand this about the, Medo, uh, the Medo-Persian Empire's law. You understand the law cannot be altered. And so when a law is made, what would you think about that law? Well, you'd think, okay, the king is serious about this. You would think this law means business. You would think, listen, if I break this law, I'm not going to get away with it. And so what this did, by having laws that could not be altered, this greatly magnified the law. This greatly portrayed the value of the law to the people. Uh, and it made, and it was great for the Medo-Persian Empire for the most part. It really showed that the empire meant business and that the law was to be obeyed. And so here in this case, even though the king, and this is kind of the, the same kind of dilemma, if you will. God's not really in a dilemma because he no, knows what he's doing. But this is this, the same kind of dilemma that God would, is kind of in. He wants to forgive people, just like the king wanted to forgive Daniel. He wants to fig, forgive be, people by, um, who are repentant. Um, but his hands are tied because if he forgives people, his law is, 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 is broken. His law is altered. And... Um, the law begins to fall apart. And so his hands are tied. So unless there's something there, unless there's something that can also uphold the law and provide forgiveness at the same time, God can't forgive. But the atonement does the same thing as the punishment of the law would do. It brings in a way for God to uphold his law and exalt his law and show everyone the value of his law without executing the punishment of the law upon uh, repentant sinners. So how does the atonement do this? The atonement does this by Christ enduring great evil for the sake of his law. 
All right. The value that you place on anything is determined by how much evil you'll suffer for its sake. Now, this is true in everyday life. The value you place on anything is determined truly and in a real way by how much suffering you would um, endure for its sake. For example, you may really value your house. Uh, you may value your possessions. Uh, you may value you know, you know, your dog. Okay, But how much are you willing to suffer for those things' sake? Like how much are you willing to suffer for your uh, house's sake? Probably not a lot. You know, you might be able to suffer, you might be willing to suffer a little bit, but you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be willing to be tortured and die for your house's sake, or hopefully not for your dog's sake even. But then think about your, your family, you know, would, do you value your family more than your house? Of course you do. Well, how could you, how, how could you know that? Well, you'd be willing to suffer more for the sake of your family um, and the sake of your, your wife than you would for your house because your value, uh, because you place more value on it. And so uh, the way that one demonstrates their value for something is their willingness to suffer for its sake. And so Jesus shows us how much he values his law by being willing to suffer great amounts of evil for its sake. Of course, that's not the only reason that Jesus, Jesus suffered, but one of the reasons Jesus suffered is so he could forgive sinners because that's his ultimate goal. His ultimate goal is he wants to forgive people, but he has to demonstrate his value for his own law in such a way that is real and tangible, and he does that through his suffering on the cross. Anyone can look at the cross and say, you know, does God value his law? Is God just like letting sin slip under the rug? Is God just letting things fly and he doesn't care about his law? No, God cares deeply about his law, and we can understand the depth to which God values his law in the sense that he uh, willingly suffered, Jesus willingly suffered on behalf of his own law. Now, a good example of this, and this is often used by other people who subscribe to the governmental theory of the atonement, a good example of this is a Greek king uh, named Zeleucus, and this is a supposed true story, but the story goes like this. There was a Greek king named Zeleucus, and he uh, had a problem with uh, people committing adultery in his kingdom, and so he instituted a law against adultery, and he said, anyone who commits adultery, his eyes shall be gouged out. Now, it came to pass over a um, short amount of time that his son was found to have committed adultery, and so here the king is in a dilemma. You know, he hates he hates the sin of the adultery. He has uh, passed a law saying that adultery is wrong and that anybody who commits adultery will have their eyes gouged out. But now he's faced with his son losing his own, uh, his own eyesight, his son going blind. And uh, he loves his son. He doesn't want his son to go blind. So here he's faced with a dilemma. What's he going to do? Now, and I want you to think of, think, uh, you know, picture yourself in this kingdom. Picture yourself one of the subjects of this king. And you hear you hear that the king's son has committed adultery, and we're waiting to hear what happens. You know, is the, is the king just going to let his son off the hook and forgive his son and say, you know, forget about it. Uh, you're my son. You're the prince. I'm going to let you go. Or is the king going to uphold his law and say, listen, the law is for you just as much as it is for anybody else. You need to suffer the consequences of your, your sin. So King Zeleucus actually comes up with an ingenious solution that is a great picture of the atonement. King Zeleucus decides that he will gouge out one of the eyes of his son and also gouge out one of his own eyes, thereby upholding his law, but also enabling his son to keep his sight. Now, I want you to, now this isn't a, you know, a one-for-one picture of the atonement, but the idea behind it is very similar to what the atonement is. 
I want you to think about what kind of message that would send you um, as you uh, are in that kingdom, if you're, if you're a subject to King Zeleucus. All of a sudden you hear that the king isn't just going to forgive the son, um, he's going to suffer on behalf of his own law so that he can show the value of his own law. The king, the king is going to allow a, um, an iron bar to be shoved into one of his eyes in order to uphold and preserve his law, to, to show that he cares about his law, to show that he's not letting his law be swept under the lug or disposed with or discarded for the sake of his um, son who had sinned. And the cool thing about it, too, is this, the king also demonstrates his great love for his son and that he'd be willing to suffer for the sake of his son. So he actually does two things here. He upholds his law by suffering for the sake of his law. He cared about his law so much that he's, he was willing to allow an iron rod to go through his eye. You know, and, and really think about that, because if you were the king in that sense, if you were the king in that situation and your son had sinned uh, and you're like, you know, I'm the king, I'm just going to forgive him you know and he could have said like i'm the king and listen you know my law is important to me he could have made the announcement he said i'm forgiving my son because my son but i want you all to know that if anybody else does this you're going to get your eyes gouged out how well do you think that would have gone over not good so the king did something very wise here provided atonement for his son and still upheld his law at the same time this is exactly and precisely the reason jesus had to die on the cross it's a beautiful thing because it demonstrates god's commitment to his law, but also demonstrates God's love for people and his willingness to bring forgiveness to people at any price. That's how much Jesus loves us. That's amazing. Now, the third thing that the penalty of the law slash the atonement does is it serves to curb future crime. Now, I want to point out here that when the, the execution of the penalty of the law is given, it helps to curb future crime. It doesn't completely prevent future crime, but it helps to curb future crime. Uh, And that is very important to understand. It is unrighteous for a ruler, for a king, to not punish crime because by not punishing crime, he encourages future crime. But by punishing crime, he helps to curb future crime by sending a clear message to the people that those who break the law will be punished. And this is exactly what the Bible teaches. You can't get around this. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 19... Um, verses 18 through 21. This is just one place in the Bible where it talks about this. There's, there's several t- places in the Bible. But in this spot, there's a story. That, it's not a story. It's just instructions that Moses is giving about someone who bears false witness. And so he's talking about someone who bears false, false witness. And when it happens, the false witness is, is to, to be uh, brought forth and to be judged. And if he's found guilty, then the Bible says, you shall do to him what he thought sought to have done to someone else. So if he was bearing false witness that someone would get killed or someone would get uh, lashed or whatever it would be, the Bible says that you shall also turn around and do it to him um, because of his, his evil in bearing false witness. And then it says here the reason why God uh, wanted them to do this. And he says, Then you shall do to him as he thought to have done to his brother, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And those who remain shall hear and fear, and hereafter they shall not again commit such evil among you. And like I said, this is just one place the Bible says this, but it's in several other places where it also says this. So one of the purposes of the punishment of the law is to curb future sin. So then we need to ask ourselves, if that's one of the purposes of the punishment of the law, how does the atonement also serve to curb future sin? 
And this is actually a really interesting um, uh, question because I believe the atonement does a much better job at curbing future sin than even the punishment of the law does. So how does the atonement do this? The atonement does this by showing that God is not willing to dispense of his law. And this is kind of what we talked about in the, in the, the, the point before this point, that by the atonement, by God demonstrating the value of his law, it also shows that he is determined to uphold his law. That means he is willing to bring forgiveness, which is demonstrated through Jesus Christ, um, to the repentant, to those who meet his conditions. But by Jesus dying on the cross and God requiring repentance and faith in order to bring forgiveness, he's also clearly demonstrating that he will uphold his law, even if that means punishing those who do not repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. And we see that clearly. That's clearly what the Bible teaches. That's clearly what we are told as Christians to go preach. Go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Those who believe shall be saved. Those who believe not shall be condemned. And so God gives clear conditions Talk about Jesus. Talk about his uh, his sacrifice on the cross. Show the people that his sacrifice is is not a payment for sin, but it's a demonstration of the righteousness of God. That God will uphold His law. That God will uphold His law, even if it means He has to suffer Himself for His law for the sake of um, those who are repentant. Uh, but if those but if the, um, those who hear do not repent and put for their faith in Jesus, they can be assured that they're going to face the full wrath of God in the condemnation of their own soul to hell. And the New Testament is particularly harsh. You know, we think the Old Testament is harsh, but the New Testament is harsh. In the Old Testament, there's talks of temporal punishment for sins, people being put to death, but the New Testament talks about eternal punishment for our sins. And the Bible says how much, the Bible even says, under the Old Testament law, with two or three witnesses, a person is put to death. And the Bible says how much more punishment ought to be given to someone who is trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has considered his blood a common thing, who has insulted the Spirit of grace. And so God offers all this graciousness to us through the cross, but in the same time shows his severity. And the Bible says, Behold the goodness and severity of God on those who, uh, on those who uh, repent goodness, but, or towards you goodness, but to those who are unwilling uh, severity. And so we ought to be extremely, by looking at the cross, we ought to be extremely afraid. It ought to drive us to Christ. We ought to fear God and ought to drive us to Christ. Because if God, was, if God would go through such lengths to bring us forgiveness, how awful it is, is it for us to reject that because of our own sin? A truly awful thing. Now in summary, I've kind of given a brief overview. And this really, you could go into a lot more detail. Um, I encourage you to look in the link below. I've posted a link to a blog about this very subject. And uh, I am not the best at explaining this. I think my blog does a better job. Uh, so go and check that out. But I just briefly tried to help you understand that the, uh, the atonement was God's way of upholding the law and forgiving sinners at the same time. And I briefly explained in this video how God did that. And it's a beautiful thing. It's an awesome thing. It's different from penal substitution. There are many similarities, but it's different from penal substitution. And I believe that it's the biblical approach. It also is um, less dangerous in the sense that it's not going to lead to some fanatical teachings um, which is what I'm going to talk about in my next video. So thanks so much for watching. If you got something out of this video, please hit the subscribe button. Also, if you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. Uh, put it in the comment section below. God bless you and have a great day.